people of Israel. For the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, and murder, and stealing, and adultery break out. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who live in it languish. Together with the wild animals and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea are perishing. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you for being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they, inc the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. They changed their glory into shame. They, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity and it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the poor, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to devote themselves to whoredom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of Hosea is um, unique in all of the Bible. The Bible is a library, more than one book, a collection of books with all different themes and people and things happening that um, are very different from book to book. Genesis is very different from the Psalms, and the Psalms are very different from First Timothy, and First Timothy is different from Matthew. Um, and all these books are given to us for different reasons. The book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets, not minor because he wasn't uh, influential or wasn't important. I think if you get your own book in the Bible, uh, you've kind of arrived as an author, uh, the most published book ever on the planet, and still the most published book today. Um, when we look at society around us and say, wow, religion is really waning and decreasing and in influence and all those things. The Bible is still one of the most, I think the most published book on the planet at this point. There's something to that. And we get to a book like Hosea, this minor prophet, who is not minor at all. <clears throat> but uh, his book is shorter than some of the larger prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. What he says is very succinct to the point. And the book of Hosea contains a story. And it, even though all the books of the Bible are different, they're different kinds of literature and different stories and different people, they're all the same on another level. And they're all about a relationship that God has with human beings. And that relationship that God has with us is in every page of Holy Scripture, every single one of them, even the parts that we aren't real sure about, even the parts that trouble us and disturb us. Hosea is one of those disturbing stories 
of the Bible. Hosea is part of the northern kingdom of Israel. There was a civil war that happened after Solomon's death, and the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, or really nine if you, as the Levites were kind of everywhere, um, they became separated from their southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and the Levites too down there. And this civil war created two different kingdoms with two different kings and queens and all that. And Hosea is in this final moment, the final moments of the Northern Empire. The Northern Empire was strong and powerful, um, just as the Southern one was. But the Northern Kingdom, as far as I can tell, all the kings were wicked. Here you have King Ahab and others, Jezebel and others. Um, seems like every king in the North was wicked, according to the chroniclers and those who describe them. Whereas in the southern kingdom of Judah, surrounding Jerusalem, and in the area around Jerusalem, there were good kings and bad kings and good kings and bad kings, and they all kind of came and went. But in the north, um, all of them were consumed by desire for the, to be like the nations around them, to have as much money, to be greedy, to worship false gods that were not the god that led them through the wilderness and led them out of Egypt. And so this is the context of Hosea. It is a time of great departure from the covenant that God has made with his people. And so all of his descriptions of this time are going to be an indictment, a rather harsh one. Um, he describes the, what's happening with people, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then he says these strange cryptic statements that the land itself is mourning, grieving, and all that languish in it. And even the wild animals are affected by this. Even the birds are affected by the bad behavior of the humans that live among them. And the fish of the sea are perishing. What's he talking about? Um, I'm not sure exactly. He doesn't go into a lot of details, but I know from reading world history that whenever the greed of human beings, especially the rich, becomes so greedy, they one of the first things they do is they build walls and restrict access to um, things that people kind of always were able to make themselves useful with. You know the story of Robin Hood, sort of a perennial tale for us, maybe. Uh, one of the big problems in the Robin Hood tale is that, the, that Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham have not allowed hunting in their forests. The hunting that people were able to do to supplement their meager diets with venison and other game animals was restricted. And so Robin Hood, one of his crimes is that he's out poaching in the king's forest or Prince John's forest because the king's away fighting the crusades. Um, and so this always became the hallmark of abuse and greed, restricting access to things that people used to be able to enjoy. Um, in that prosperity of the northern kingdom, as they consume more and more, they need to consume more and more and more and more and more 
to be able to maintain their status and their lifestyle. And so what people do in times of hardship at the bottom, they steal and they take and they start catching wild animals um, and trapping them and eating them because they don't have access to enough to keep them going as that all that stuff goes and flows to the very top small percentage of people. Same with the seas. Overfishing is still a problem in our world today. Cape Cod, famous for its cod banks, um, pretty much was depleted by the 1960s or 70s. Um, some of you are probably much more knowledgeable about um, the, the impact of fishing on global waters and how that need to have a lot of cocktail shrimp for a low price um, leads to almost a depletion of whole species. Certainly the shark fin soup phenomena um, led to the near ending of certain shark species. And we can always see how this works in our world. And we are part of this. We are part of this. We don't always like to think of ourselves as being part of these supply chains that demand so much from animals. I think one of the biggest tragedies that, at least emotionally for me, is thinking about the whaling industry, um, how whale oil for a long period of time became the number one fuel for cities to power their lamps and a lot of other stuff. And you could cat kill a whale and bring it in and make a lot of money. And people did. And all those whaling stories like, you know, Moby Dick and all that come out of that time where whales were being harvested. And when you think about the whale's life cycle, how long it takes to make a whale um, and all the things that have to happen for a whale to enter the world, um, that they can be killed in an instant. Um, and now as, as uh, factory ships uh, increase that production, can be killed in large numbers in an instant. Um, it's sad to think that that is what we will do with the resources and technology we have. Our greed and sin as a community will always affect the innocents around us, the children, the elderly, the um, and even the animal kingdom that we are we are told to live in harmony with. Adam named all the animals, and that was the that was the way we were supposed to live with the animals around us: to name them, to know them, and to delight in them, to study them. Adam studies the animals, and that's how he figures out that. Um, he doesn't have a, a, a companion like most of the mammals do and figures that out because he's studying, he's observing. Humans were meant to learn from animals. So many times in scripture we're told to go to the ant, thou sluggard in Proverbs, and look at other animals and figure out things about humanity that maybe will help us work together better. But it is, a, it is not individual sins that Hosea is talking about. Um, and we kind of know this because of the things he says, that we ought to um, focus on what we are doing as a people. The priesthood of the northern kingdom uh, really took a hit when they split because they didn't have a temple in Jerusalem anymore. So they set up another temple uh, in the northern kingdom in Samaria. This leads to the problems of between Samaritans and Jews that we read about in the New Testament, but in Jesus' time, sort of so close, but yet so far away. 
um, the Samaritans and the people um, that come back from the exile. But this is happening now. The priesthood in the northern kingdom is corrupt. They are also part of this system. They are not um, speaking prophetically. And that's where the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament arrives. Prophets had two functions, as many people have pointed out. They were the foretellers and the foretellers. They were foretellers. They told the future um, often. They would predict events that were to come, events very, very, very far away, like the birth of Jesus, as we as Christians believe. And they also predicted events in the short term that were more closer at hand of things that would happen, including the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. This is going to happen. You need to be ready for it. And nobody will believe us until it happens. Um, the prophetic tradition also was a fourth teller in that they were preachers who stood outside, often outside, the system of priesthood and temple and sacrifice and even kingship. They were outside of that system too, even though many of the prophets wandered into the king's court to tell the king things. Um, but they were fourth tellers. They declared the word of God, which was not anything original, really. It was just the covenant that God had made with God's people in, at Mount Sinai, um, that that covenant was still in effect and they ought to return to it um, and, and uh, not be so enticed by the materialism and false worship of their times. This is what the prophets did in that age, and this is what prophets do in our age. Paul Tillich, an old army chaplain from World War I and theologian, uh, said that artists are the prophets of our age, that artists, um, contemporary art, people that are li- artists that are alive today, and, and certainly artists that have been alive before, but especially artists that are still making art today, are prophetic often. They often see the way things ought to be in a way that we cannot as current residents of our systems. Um, artists uh, do this. If you go uh, to any art museum in America or the, the world and see contemporary art, you'll see that. You'll say, why are they doing that? Why are they saying that? What, what point are they trying to make? It's confusing. Or the, the worst thing you can say in a contemporary art exhibit is, I could have done that. And the answer, of course, is, well, you didn't. Um, and, but artists are the prophets of our age. They often see beyond what's really happening now to what's really going to happen and, and also what is happening now in that way. That's often what we recognize as good art and good artists. Um, even though we can't fully understand what they're trying to say, we know they're saying something. And that something is um, often a, a return to the values that we, um, that we lost with our materialism, with our... Um, and I think part of the reason artists are prophets is because ultimately art is a waste. You can't point to some great um, economic value um, in it when it's being made. Um, you know, if your child says, I want to be an artist when they turn 18, every parent says, okay, um, <laughs> well, you know, um, hope you can make a living doing that. Um, the tangible intangible nature of art is the thing that that makes it prophetic in that um, and just like the prophets in the Old Testament they lived outside the economic system many times um, 
the reading from this Sunday that we didn't read from Jeremiah was about Jeremiah buying property in a city that was about to be destroyed, um, doing absurd things. And I think the story of Hosea is one where he does the most absurd thing of all. God tells him to marry Gomer. Gomer. It's hard to say her name in a pretty way. Um, we don't name our daughters Gomer or Gomer today. Um, but she is a sex worker by any description of current time. The NRSV translates her, her title as a wife of whoredom, a promiscuous woman, or maybe a prostitute. All the terminology for people that we see as the other that do bad things sexually is always going to be laden with a lot of presuppositions and stereotypes and all those things. But God tells her that um, just as I have married Israel, I have married the nation of Israel, God says, and they have cheated on me with other gods. Um, So I want you, Hosea, to marry a woman who will cheat on you, who with other men, and have babies with other men that you will raise. Um, This is the harsh reality of Hosea's life with Gomer. He does it, he obeys God, and each of his children have a prophetic name about um, about what they are symbolizing for the nation of Israel. Uh, prophets' lives were not easy, and you can imagine Hosea's questioning this and wondering if this was really uh, what his life was meant to be. And yet it is the life that God has with God's people. Um, and so Gomer and Hosea's life together um, is one of tragedy, but also one of love. That God tells Hosea to speak gently to her. And when she wants to come back, to bring her back, um, to restore that relationship as best he can. Um, And it happens a number of times in the story. She leaves, she comes back. Um, and we can feel the real human tragedy in that, the real human drama in that. Um, and, you can, and, we, and, yet, and we can see a little bit into that relationship that God has with God's people. That God's relationship with God's people is one of deep emotion, one of deep feeling, one of great ups and great downs, one of great um, sorrow, and also great joy and victory. Um, God is not expecting us to have a perfect relationship with God. Um, God does not have that expectation. In fact, God um, has a very realistic expectation of what it's like to relate to human beings. Um, We see that all through Scripture. Even there's emotion and there's frustration on God's part. God keeps coming back to us, even when we do not come back to God. Um, I think the task for all of us as Christians and all of us as human beings, ultimately in the universe, is to really know that we're loved by God, Um, to really know that deep in our soul, in times of doubt and hardship and fear and discouragement, to really, really, really know that um, does take a lot of spiritual 
work in the sense of we got to tell ourselves that and we got to be around people who will tell us tell us that but also it is requires not work not work but an opening of our hearts to god and allowing god's grace that flows to us freely to hit us um really the work of knowing we're loved is to is just to take down the barriers to that take down the walls that we built to protect ourselves take down those fences and screens and all the things we've done to um to live in the state of safety that we think is safe but it's really confining but to open our hearts to God's love to feel that love in the universe that the relationship God has with us is full of ups and downs and always will be but it's one of great love and Hosea tells us that um with this extreme example of God's love for God's people. Ultimately in Jesus Christ, God makes it very very clear to humanity that not only is God loving us and giving us stuff um like light and air and all these things, but God also ultimately gives us God's self and becomes one of us. And that never changes. God is still one of us. Jesus is still one of us, is still a human being. and we believe in heaven and he will come again to judge the living and the dead so that relationship now is closer closer than it's ever been that is the meaning of the incarnation that god became flesh and so when we feel that our flesh is unlovable because it's weak and we fail and we get discouraged to know that god understands that god knows that and god loves that part of us that part of us that we feel might be unlovable um one of the i've shared this so many times but it's one of the greatest lessons of my life when i went to my physician's assistant for something um that i was embarrassed about i don't know if you've ever had to do that go to the doctor for something you um you didn't really like you know you kind of waited to the last minute because it's like i don't really want to oh i have to deal with this and i went and um I said I'm really sorry you have to like do this. Check me check check me out on this. And my physician assistant said, "You know, this is the least interesting thing about you. This is the least most this is the least interesting thing about you." And I thought I think about that a lot. That our troubles, the things we go to the doctor for, the things that weigh us down, discourage us, make us feel ashamed and all those things. the least interesting thing about us. We there's so much more to us. And God knows that. God knows that. God knows that about you. Amen. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown, and behold thee on thy throne rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee